for your truth. Help us to wade through it this morning. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring it to bear in our lives. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us a heart this morning that is willing to look to ourselves and to see the areas in our own lives that need to be changed, not in our spouse's life, but in my life. Lord, I pray that you would use this, these truths, this material to change us. And Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome. You can be seated. Well, it's great to see all of you here th this morning. We are starting a, a kind of a mini-series on marriage, and, um, and I'm delighted to be a part of this. Uh, I am a, a pastor first uh, before I am a counselor, but, um, but I don't make any great distinction between the two. A pastor's job is both to preach the word and to minister the word in all of the practical areas of life because we believe that the word of God is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. And certainly if there's any area of our life that needs uh, the word of God to come to bear on, it is on our relationships with one another and in particular our marital relationships. As you know, an awful lot has happened in the last few years relative to marriage and uh, America, the American courts redefining marriage. Of course, God has not sanctioned that redefinition, but an awful lot of things have happened relative to the Supreme Court and its uh, stamp of approval upon homosexual marriage, not just approval, but mandating that all the states recognize this. But beyond all of that controversy, that's really not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about your marriage or maybe your future marriage. Uh, the one you're in now or the one that I hope you'll be in. What is this? That's my marked one. So is this one. Okay. Well, I've got two sets of notes. Um, but marriage today is, uh, is kind of facing some hard times just relative to participation because fewer young people are getting married. I just looked up some stats. Actually, I had Pam look them up and give them to me. Um, in 1960, nearly 70% of American adults were married. Now only about half are. Uh, back then, two-thirds of the 20-somethings, people between 20 and 30, um, Two-thirds were married. In 2008, only 26%, or just over one-fourth, were married. Clearly, there's a growing reticence among the young toward the idea of getting married. And for those whose lives are saturated with the philosophies of the world, starting with evolution and, uh, and then working its way into Freudian psychology and all the psychologies that have come out of that, and all the worldly philosophies, that makes sense. If you buy into that, then it makes sense that, that you probably don't want to get married uh, when you're young or married at all. Uh, although that's, that's statistically not the case. It seems that, that all young people, almost all young people, want to get married. It's just they don't want to get married young, and they want to define marriage however they want to define it. But for young believers in Jesus Christ... It's so important that we understand marriage from God's perspective. 
I mean, this is the competing worldviews, right? We've got the, the view of the world as it looks at marriage, but the view of the church as we look at marriage is, is quite different. And for young believers in Jesus Christ, such reluctance to find a believing mate, get married, and have children is contrary to the biblical truth we profess to believe. Um, I realize that in our culture, marriage has become a confusing thing, but it shouldn't be. God has put, no doubt, uh, unless God has given you the gift of singleness, and there is that, but if you don't have the gift of singleness, then God has put within your heart a desire to get married, and that desire is good. I realize that as a young person, you look around and you see the statistics, and, and uh, maybe you have even experienced the reality of divorce in your family or divorce in uh, a family that is related to you, and you see the fallout, and, and certainly you can't go anywhere, any kind of relational sphere where you don't see that, even in the church, even in this church. Uh, we know that the heartache and the pain and the devastation that comes from divorce, there's so much happiness. I get that, but here's my message to you. It doesn't have to be that way. It just doesn't have to be that way. God's plan is always best, and it's good, and it's, it's the path to joy. Submitting to your king relative to your view of marriage, you know, I often say around here, you don't know how to speak until the word of God teaches you to speak. You don't know how to eat until the word of God teaches you to eat. And you don't know how to be married until the word of God teaches you how to be married. But when you receive the, the, the word of God implanted in your soul, when you receive it and apply it to these things as submitting to your king, there is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so for followers of Jesus Christ, marriage should be a glorious thing. And I know for many of you, it is. And, and it is for me, too. I love being married. I love being married. Uh, my wife is my dearest friend, my closest confidant, my ministry partner, my helper, my chief counselor, even as late as yesterday, and the one person I love to be with more than anyone else in the world. Um, we've been married. We're in our 30th year of marriage. It means we've been married for 29 years. And uh, this coming Christmas will be 30. I just love being married. It's the greatest earthly joy I've ever experienced, and I get to experience it every day, unless she's gone. And then my favorite song is, Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone. <laughs> my kids thought I made up that song, and Maddie heard it the other day on the radio. We were walking through a mall. Uh, <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying marriage is a walk in the park. I'm not saying it's easy. It's, it's not for anyone. It's not. And there's a reason for that. It's because, um, it's because you're sinful. Did you know that? I mean, if you struggle with that thought, get over yourself. You're not, not going to make any progress in your relationships, in your marriage relationship, until you own that. And we're going to spend the whole next session talking about that. But you're a sinner, and you married a sinner. You know what dogs do? Dogs bark. You know what sinners do? They sin. You sin. You sin against one another. You sin against God. You sin against your own nature if you're a child of God. Um, and so I'm not saying that, that being married and experiencing the joy is something that comes easily. It doesn't. And it hasn't in our marriage. 
there have been some really rough places in our marriage. I don't want you to think that I'm standing up here as a guy who uh, is, is married to the perfect woman, who's married to the perfect man, and we've never struggled. That is so far from true. I want you to understand that we have struggled in marriage. You know why? Because my wife married a sinner, and so did her husband. And it's difficult when two sinners join themselves to one another because we have competing desires. And when those competing desires become dominant in our thinking and in our goal-setting and our planning, um, it can get ugly. So it's not easy. Um, but the Lord is so faithful, and his word has proven itself to be singularly sufficient to bring us into repentance in every case, and will continue to bring us into repentance. You realize that's, that's the theme of the Christian life, right? It's repentance and faith. Just like the day you believed, it was repentance and faith. And so now every day of your sanctification is one lived by repentance and faith. Just get over the fact that you're a sinner. Own that, because you are. And owning it and, and bringing God's word to bear on that every day is going to be the path to joy. Um, Noel Piper writes, the pendulum of our marriage, this is Noel and John Piper, the pendulum of our marriage oscillates and sometimes wobbles, but it is suspended from above and is firmly attached. By God's grace, it will not crash to the ground. That's from This Momentary Marriage by Joan Piper. And so I love being married, and I want you to have the kind of marriage that you treasure and enjoy. So today, before we get into the details of specific marriage issues, I, I just want to take this opportunity to talk to you about the glory of marriage. The glory of marriage. The fact is, marriage was God's idea. I mean, if man invented it, then man can do whatever he wants to do with marriage. But man didn't invent marriage. God invented marriage. He instituted it for his own glory, and he instituted it, as you will see, for your joy. So let's consider his perspective on marriage. So number one in your notes, God's purposes for marriage. You have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Everything begins in Genesis, right? Um, Genesis 1 and 2. We can find our way back there. Just start at page one and flip to the right. <laughs> if you can find it, Genesis 1 and 2. In the book of Genesis, we discover several purposes God had for marriage. First of all, the first purpose is to magnify God's glory. Notice in chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So when God created the first people, he did it to put his own likeness on display in the world. I mean, we're not even to marriage yet, but we already see, even when there was just Adam, God created him in such a way to put his likeness on display in the world. In other words, God created man to show the world what God is like. We bear his image. That's the whole point of that. It's like in Egypt when uh, Pharaoh created all of these statues of himself. 
put it all over his kingdom, places he would never, ever go. And every time you saw that image, oh, that's who's in charge. Oh, that's who's in charge. There's his glory. There's a reflection of his glory. He's my king. He's the one. In, in the Russian bloc countries, back when Lenin was in charge, Lenin did the same thing, put his likeness everywhere. In fact, there are some places today where they haven't been torn down yet. And you see Lenin. Why? Because it's, it was a likeness that was all over the face of the kingdom, showing the kingdom what the king is like. And that's why we were created. God went public with his glory by creating us in his likeness according to his image. So Adam and Eve, uh, Adam, Adam and Eve were to put God's glory on display in the world. You remember when God created Adam, he said, that's good. And when he put Eve in the mix, he said, that's very good. <laughs> um, it is not good for you to be alone. And so God created Eve, too, out of a rib from Adam, taking it from his flesh so that the two would become one, and, and we'll see that here in just a minute. But this was God's design, that his glory would be manifest in your marriage. So that's number one, and that's foundational. Number two, or B here, it's to procreate the image of God. It was great that there was Adam and Eve, and there they were, the two. They were so unlike the animal kingdom. And in that respect, they reflected the glory of God in a way that was distinct and different from the animal kingdom. But God wanted his glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so he gave them the ability to procreate, to have children. Um, God desired that the whole world be populated with those who bear his image. So he ordained that within the parameters of marriage, children would be born who would also bear the likeness of their creators so that they too would grow up and show the world what God is like and multiply and multiply and multiply. Verse 28 reads, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and what's, what's the third thing? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. Now, one thing that tells me is God was not concerned about overpopulation. And that relates to this because you may not know this, but population issues around the world are a really, really big deal. And you know what the big deal is? It's not too many people. It's not enough people. Uh, and we don't have time to talk about that this morning, but this is a huge time bomb. And everybody who, who um, is concerned about economies and nations knows this. That's why China just recently lifted their one-child law. Um, it's why Russia is paying couples to have children and giving them weeks off just to encourage them to do whatever is necessary to have more children. Um, is because of what's called the, uh, the uh, demographic winter. And just get online and type in demogra demographic winter and sit back for about an hour and watch. And, and it'll, it'll scare you to death what's happening in the world today relative to population implosion. And it's, it's based on choice. We're aborting our babies and we're choosing not to get married and have babies. 
and the effects on our world nobody even wants to talk about. Um, but God created us for his glory and to procreate his glory. And notice, too, that their fruitfulness was given as a blessing, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a what? A reward. A reward. If you have children, it's because God's blessing you. And so, ladies, when you're home and your kids are squabbling and fighting and you're about ready to pull your hair out, just look and say, Lord, it's so wonderful how blessed I am to have these squabbling, (laughs) fighting children. Um, Notice, too, that uh, uh, God went out to display his glory through all of this. So God's glory, the procreation of his image, and then third, intimate companionship. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Uh, Intimate companionship. God created marriage for companionship. Um, Many believe marriage was designed by God for procreation of the human race and that exclusively. And that's not true. That's that's more the Catholic view. Uh, You get married so that you have a license to bear children. Uh, In reality, however, marriage was to establish It was established to show the world what God is like, first of all. And one of the eternal attributes of God is companionship, or we might say community. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always lifted and have always existed, have always lived together in eternity past, in eternity. They have always existed in community. There's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's never been a time, if we can even use that word when we speak of eternity, there's never been a moment of time when there was not community in the Trinity, even though nothing else existed. Perfect community. Perfect community in the Godhead. And that was to be reflected in marriage. And so when God looked at Adam, he said, it is not good for you to be alone. I created you to to manifest my glory. And ideally, that means you're not alone. Now again, there are those he's gifted for the particular purpose that runs contrary to this, to be single and free to serve God in that way. But for the most part, God wants people, wants men and women to be married Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a, what? A helper suitable for him. Or a helper, in the Hebrew, it's a helper that corresponds to him. And it's interesting, after that verse, verse 18, let's see, we're in 2.18. Um, and then God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper And then look at verse 19. What happens in verse 19? Does he make him a helper? What's he do? Say it. He looks around. What else? Yeah. He demonstrates his need. How does he do that? Right. So he starts bringing in the giraffes and the zebras and the hippopotami. Right? And they're all coming. Here they come, two by two by two. And he's naming them. Okay, that's hippopotamus. Huh, look, there's two of them. Huh, there's, there's two giraffes. Huh, there's two of them. There's only one of me. 
<laughs> Where's my companion? Isn't that interesting? I will make you a helper suitable. Now, let's start naming the animals. What's the connection? I think, I think Phil's right. He was demonstrating to Adam his need. Something's missing. You're perfect, but you're incomplete. It was after he names all the animals that God then puts him to sleep and brings forth his wife. Um, so you see, God has hardwired us to see to sense kind of a, a deep feeling of loneliness without a human companion to share life with. God is a relational being, and so he made us to be relational beings. And yes, Adam and Eve, Eve was given to Adam as his helper, but that's really just one facet, one facet of their companionship. She was to be his helper, but that's only one part of it. The Bible even refers specifically to the fact that companionship is a key element to marriage. Let me just give you a couple of places where it's explicit. Proverbs 2.17 says, this is regarding the strange woman. She's not strange because, you know, she had facial features that were weird. She was strange because she was immoral. And Proverbs, Solomon liked to refer to her as the strange woman, the adulteress who, and this is a quote, leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So she's leaving and forgetting. What is she forgetting? She's, she's leaving her companion and forgetting the, the covenant that she made with that companion. The emphasis here is God views marriage as a companionship. Malachi 2.14 the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. This is more than, than just about procreation and helping. It is about companionship. It is not good for you to be alone. Jay Adams points out that the word here in the Hebrew translated companion in this verse has the idea of, you ready for this, guys? One who is tamed. <laughs> One who is tamed. Now, when I was in college, I met this beautiful girl, and uh, her name was Christine, still is. And uh, we started dating pretty soon after she arrived on campus. And um, somewhere along the way, uh, in my singleness, I, I found a coffee cup and on the front of it, it said, I heart love, right? I heart being single. I love being single, right? And it was in my dorm room, never told her about it. And one day, I would travel on the weekends uh, for the school, PR kind of stuff. And uh, one weekend while I was gone, our new president uh, established a, a, a day, it must have been a Friday or a Saturday when I was gone, so that the guys could go into the girls' dorms and kind of see what's going on there, see what the rooms are like. And the girls could come over to the guys' dorms and see what the guys' dorms are like. And uh, she came over and went into my room, and she saw that cup. Oh, my, oh, oh boy. <laughs> and she told me, one of these days, I'm going to smash that cup. <laughs> you know why I like that cup? There was something in me that just liked being single. You like to be untamed, right? Uh, you don't want to be, I remember it was... <laughs> Some of the, this is going to rub some of you the wrong way. Jeff 
Don is a police officer, and he came to me one day, and he says, why is it in Spanish the word for, um, for handcuffs is uh, esposas, and the, and the word for wife is esposa? And I said, Jeff, I'm not even answering that question, bro. <laughs> but there's something about you in your singleness. You're untamed. You just want to be funky and free. You want to do your own thing, right? And God has put within your heart a desire to find a companion. And when you enter into that companionship, it is a companionship where both of you are tamed. Or at least that's the idea. One that is tamed or one that has a close, intimate relationship with another. It's virtually impossible to establish a close relationship with a wild animal. But that's not the case if the animal has been domesticated or tamed. Uh, my son Josh's favorite quote before he got married or engaged uh, was from Jim Elliott, and it said... Um, Domesticated males are no good for adventure. <laughs> so when he got engaged, came home for the first time, our kids put that quote on our front picture window. <laughs> <laughs> Domesticated males are no use, no good for adventure. And, uh, and his wife took exception to that. She loves adventure. But this is a big problem in a lot of marriages. One or both partners come into the relationship with an untamed heart. They want to be wild, they want to be free, they want to be selfish, they're self-oriented, self-oriented, even though they are bound together. But you know what? That never works. And in almost every case of marital counseling, this is at the root. It's the idolatry of self. It's my way. It's my desires, it's my ambitions, it's my expectations, it's my needs. It's having an untamed heart. Now, untamed, first of all, under the reign of God. You don't, you don't want anybody telling you what to do. You want to tell your spouse what to do, how he should live, how she should live, to make you happier. And no doubt you entered the relationship to be happy. You had your ideal of what happiness would be and you thought... You might get it through this relationship, and as long as you're pursuing it, you're never going to get it. It's having an untamed heart. It just doesn't work. When a couple gets married, they enter into a binding covenant with each other and with God that they will no longer live for themselves, but for God and for the companion whom they love. They leave their father and mother and the previous friendships and they cleave to one another in singular devotion. The depraved, self-centered nature is like a wild animal that wants to live for self. It's like you understand that God, you look at your wife after you get married and say, Honey, you know, when we got married, God made us one. just want you to know I'm the one. That means we live for me. It means my ambitions are supremo. What I want is what we do. Where I say we go, that's where we go. When I say no, it's no. When I say yes, it's yes. 
they live to gratify their own desires and um, pursue its every whim and never deny self. No pleasure is denied. By the way, uh, the connection to this is in James 4. Why do for fights and quarrels exist among you? Why do you fight and quarrel? Is it not your passions, your desires that wage war within you? You see, it's not the other person who's the problem. It's your own wicked heart. It's your desires. It's your lusts. It's your expectations. It's your passions that wage war within you. What was God's original design? Well, let's look at it through the eyes of Jesus in Matthew 19. Flip over to Jesus in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6. The Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? That means... Uh, he's not saying, is there, is, there, is there any particular reason that is legitimate to divorce your wife? That's not what they're saying at all. What they're, what they're saying is, is it okay for us to divorce for any reason? I mean, for every reason. I mean, if she burns the bagels, can I, can I divorce her? I mean, it really came down to things like that. If she, she burned the food, she didn't cook the meal right. If she was found talking uh, with a male uh, other than her husband. If, I mean, it could be anything. If she just wasn't pleased, if he wasn't pleased with her, can we divorce for any reason? And he answered and said, have you not read? And implication is, did you not read Genesis? The beginning, right? Have you read your Bible? He loved to say that to these scholarly Pharisees who thought they knew the law. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? You see what he's doing? He's arguing marriage from Genesis. Verse 5, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall no longer be two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man divorce, let no man separate. First thing Jesus points out is that God created just one man and one woman. It's obvious from the Genesis text, and Jesus is pointing to that. I mean, how many people did he create? Uh, just one of each. And there are some important implications here. You see, God's original intent was not for a man to have several women or a woman to have several men. His original design was that there be one man and one woman for life. God didn't create Adam, Eve, and Ethel, just in case Eve didn't work out. Steve Ham has, has told me, never say God didn't create Adam and Steve. So I won't say that. But in our homosexual climate, that's true as well. It's another observation. He didn't create two men. He didn't create two women. He created a man and a woman and only one of each. He created a male and female. Second, notice Verse 5, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The word joined here is important. In the Greek, it's the word kalo, which means glue. You are stuck together. Um, you are stuck to each other, and there are some days you're going to feel like you're stuck with each other. 
but you are glued together. It's the idea of a strong bond that holds the two together in, un, in an unbreakable union. The, the KJV translates it cleave. But the idea there is that you are with all your might clinging to one another, and sometimes it's going to feel like that. But it's this idea of a strong bond. You've enter, entered into a covenant. It kind of gives the idea of holding tightly to one another, and yet it also has the idea of God gluing you together. This is the kind of marriage uh, companionship. It's a relationship that is exclusive. You are bound to one under God. It forsakes all others, all other binding unions, and cleaves exclusively to its mate. It's a good thing, I think, before young people to get married, to write a letter to their parents and say, I love you, you've done a wonderful job raising me, for the rest of my life I will have cherished memories, but from this day forward, our home is our home. Get it? <laughs> no meddling. You're not the authority anymore in our lives. We are joined to one another. We have our own family. We have forsaken all else to cling to one another. Um, this is a kind of companionship that demands that. It's a kind of companionship that says, better to lose one's father and mother and closest friends than to put a wedge between these two companions. Better to lose all of that. And a man who understands this aspect of marriage will communicate to his wife that all his friendships, all his ambitions are subordinate to his devotion to her. I have, on occasion when my wife and I were struggling some years ago, said, if necessary, I'll quit my job. Whatever it's going to take. My devotion is not to the church, it's not to my career, it's not to my parents, it's not to my friends, it's to you, and we are going to work through this. That's devotion. That's the covenant of companionship. And a woman who understands this will make her husband first priority over every other desire of her life. Neither will allow any other priority to come between them because they are willingly glued together with a strong bond of love and covenantal devotion because that's the way God intended it. Again, I don't know how to love my wife until God tells me how. And this is what he's saying. You be devoted to her exclusively. No one else gets into that picture. And, and I would argue, this is the parenting lecture, but I would argue not even the children not even the children. You raise your children to leave the home, not to stay in the home. And sooner the better as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but you know what? If, if, you're in a, if, if you've worked at your marriage, if you've worked at taming your own heart under God's rule and before one another, that's going to be your perspective. I can't wait until I'm free to spend the rest of my life with my wife without anything else inhibiting that. Third, notice the text goes on. One man, one woman, strong bond, and now at the end of verse 5, one flesh. One flesh. 
You see, so close is their relationship that now, as far as God is concerned, they are no longer two people. They are one. They are one. Now they are to function not as two individuals with different ambitions, different values, different goals, but as one person with one set of ambitions and one set of goals designed for the good of both because they are one. Every time a couple has a baby, and for some of us it's more often than not, or more often than others, the truth of one flesh relationship suddenly becomes a living reality. Isn't that true, Maze? Just had a baby recently. And you look at that child, and, and we've got little Ellen and Leah now, our grandbabies, and it's a debate. Who do they look like more? Do they look like, more like Josh or more like Rachel? And some days, somebody will, will come and say, you know, your son, whichever son, my son, wow, they really look like you. And then somebody else comes, no, they really look like Chris. What do you think? I don't know. I can see her, her eyes and his big head or whatever. <laughs> what is that? That is the two becoming one in this little child. The manifestation of your oneness. God has so ordained it, it to be such a oneness that when a child is born from the two of you, People tell us all the time, when we meet a Kirk kid, we know it's a Kirk kid. They look like you. And that's God's design. The two shall become one flesh. Fourth, um, oh, that, that strong bond. And then, um, fourth, notice verse six. If that the marriage is... Marriage is a work of God. So we have one man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, and now a work of God. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man divorce, let no man separate. Every time a man and a woman come together in marriage, it is an act of God. It is an act of God. Um, for some of you, that's an easy thing to say. And you praise God every day that he gave you the companion of your youth. And others of you, you look at the companion that you have now and go, is it possible that God made a mistake? Because it's not working out the way I'd hoped. And my answer to that is, no, it is impossible for God to ever make a mistake. And I've had couple after couple come to me and say, we just want, we, we need to clear something up here. Is it possible we could have missed God's will? And I'll typically say in the first session, okay, look, if we need to deal with that, we'll deal with it in about session four or five. We'll talk about the will of God. But let me just clarify it now, and we'll get into the details later. I'll just clarify it by asking you a question. And I'll look at the wife, and I'll say, when you were on the platform when, that day, did, did you say I do? Yes. I'll look at him and say, did you say I do? Yes. Okay, well, then that settles it. It was the will of God for you to get married because you are. And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. And what is the good? Conforming you to the image of his son. And he gave you, listen, he gave you just the spouse you need for him to work out Christ in you. 
It may be a sharp instrument, it may be a blunt instrument sometimes, but your spouse often is that instrument God uses to sanctify you. You don't know how to be married until God teaches you to be married. Be taught. Be taught. Um, Every time a man and woman come together in marriage, it is an act of God. God gave you to each other. And for those who are submissive to the word of God in their marriage and love one another as their own flesh, who view their lifelong bond with their spouse as a blessing of the Lord and seek to magnify his glory in the way they treat one another, it is a blessed act, a blessed miracle every day. Every day. I tell you, um, I don't know what my life would be like today if God had not blessed me with the wife that he gave me. But then again, I don't want to know. I mean, whatever that life would be like, it'd be worse. It wouldn't be good. Nothing on earth has been more precious to me in life than the gift that God gave me when he gave me my wife. There's nothing on earth more valuable, more precious, more worthy of my devotion and protection than my marriage to this amazing woman. And there has been no one in my life that God has used to sanctify me more than he has used her. And she's standing in the back. So um, just ask her. But that's the way marriage was intended to be, right? One man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, work of God. If you grasp these five, these five biblical truths of marriage, then you'll understand something of why God put you together. This is an amazing gift, marriage is, and yet it doesn't always work out for people, does it? So we have to ask, why is that? Why is that? Well, let's see. How far of this can I go? We may have to extend our... <laughs> we are going to have to extend our series on marriage because <laughs> I only have five minutes left. Um, but the next thing I want to talk to you about is, is this aspect, um, that man has a problem in marriage. There is a reason problems occur in marriage, and that reason is sin and how it works in the human heart. And it's important that we get a grasp on that. Um, otherwise, you're not going to know how to correct the problems that are there in a way that will bring the joy that I'm telling you God will give you if you are married in the Lord. Um, and by the way, let me just say to you young people, um, once again, you don't know how to be married until God tells you how to be married. And the very first principle is this. Marry in the Lord. Choose a believing spouse. The heartache that will come. You'll fall in love with some guy, girls. You'll find some guy that you just love and he's so cute. That's not going to last. I mean, look at this. Right? <laughs> it's not going to last. And then you're stuck with him. And you're going to find out he's more selfish than you are. 
and you're going to get married. And then one of these days, you're going to come to my office and say, Pastor, what have I done? Don't do it. Don't do it. When I go over to Tajikistan, uh, I have friends over there now, and only a few of them speak English. Um, but I've asked questions about marriage and singleness over there because there, there are a number of, uh, of young, educated women over there. And, uh, and I've asked them, what's the deal with that? Um, why, why aren't you all married? I'm just curious. And they say, oh, pastor, we are committed to finding a believing spouse and there just aren't hardly any godly men in the church over here, in, in the churches. It's full of elderly women and young women and very few men. And, uh, and their perspective is, there's one thing worse than marrying, uh, than being single, and that's marrying the wrong guy. And especially marrying someone that the Lord has told you not to marry. That's just a recipe for disaster. And here's the thing, I go back to it again. You don't know how to be married until God teaches you to be married. And here's the first thing God teaches. Find someone who knows the Lord, who has, when, when people come to me, when young people come to me, it's interesting, I'll, I'll tell you a, a little story because I have it one minute. So one day, I don't think they'll mind me telling you this, I, th I think this is, this is pretty public. But one day, Rhiannon Canariado came to me and we were in Mexico City on a missions trip and her and I got put together in this, in this vehicle with, with a few others. We were going to do ministry. The other half of the team was going somewhere else. And so her and I had some time to talk. We were driving across Mexico City. And, um, and she said, Pastor, can I, since I got your attention, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She said, how do I, how do I find, how do I discern God's will, you know, in terms of choosing a mate? And I said, oh, that's easy. Here's what you do. You find a guy who has a verifiable history of submission to the word of God, and you marry him, no matter what he looks like or how gifted he may be. Find someone who has a verifiable history of submission to the word of God, and you'll be happy. Okay, so fast forward about a year. Benjamin Whiting comes to me on a camp out, and he says, hey, pastor, can we take a walk? And I said, sure. What's on your mind? He says, doesn't need counsel. How do I find a, a, a someone to marry? How do I find the wife that God wants me to have? And I said, Benjamin, it's pretty simple. Just find a girl who has a verifiable history of submission to the word of God and marry her. And guess what happened? They found each other. So now it's Rhiannon and Ben Whiting. And you know what? For you young people who are unmarried, I would say the same thing. Don't cut any corners. Forget about how cute they are. Forget about all the superficial stuff. Find someone who has a verifiable history of personal submission to the word of God. And that's where you start. If you were to ask Ernie Baker that question, as, as my son did, my oldest son, we were riding in the car headed to the airport, and I always like to take my oldest kid at home to ride with me when I, when I have you know, alone time with some of these guys. And Ernie Baker was the guy on this occasion, and I said, Josh, go ahead and, and ask. And, 
And he said, Ernie, I'm just needing counsel. He was at college. How do I, you know, same question. How do I find a godly mate? And he said, Josh, here's what you do. You run after God as hard as you can run. And then once in a while, look over your shoulder and see who's running with you and marry her. And he did. The girl that was running with him the whole way. And now we have grandbabies. Isn't that great? What a great place to end this session. <laughs> well, there's more to learn here. There's so much more, and I hope you'll come back next time. Here's the deal. Next week is Easter Sunday, and so we're not going to do this. What we are going to do is have a, a, a prayer and praise time like we do every so often. We're going to sing. We're going to pray. We're just going to uh, glory in Christ Jesus, right? We're going to magnify the Lord together. And, uh, and it's just going to be a sweet time of, of fellowship and worship. And then the week after that, we'll be back to talk about marriage. And then the week after that, I think, is baptism. But the week after that, we'll come back and talk about marriage some more. And, uh, and I'll do that a few more weeks. And then Keith Christensen is going to come in. And after I get done talking about the particulars of marriage and how God designed it and, and how you should approach it, uh, I've asked him to come in and take the theological perspective to deal with the issue of complementarianism. And that's a really important issue in our day. And you may not be familiar with that term, but it's a really important issue. And so you need to be here for that as well, if you can. I got a couple of announcements. And uh, why don't we pray, and then I'll tell you about them. Lord, thanks for this time. And pray, Lord, that you would um, take your word and apply it to our hearts and change us make our marriages stronger, and protect our young people from making unbiblical choices about whom to marry and how to be married. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified in a church full of couples who, no matter their background, whether even if they're divorced in the past or no matter what their history is, now, Lord, are a model of what it is to demonstrate the glory of God, showing the world what God is like in the way they love one another. And Father, be glorified in that. Make us that kind of church, we pray. Even more so than it is now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.